Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Implant Games Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Genthy, and I have a great show lined up for you today. So let's go ahead and get started with the news. Uh, so this just announced today, this morning, I've talked about this a couple of months ago, Data Discs. Our Data Disc, a UK company who does uh, video game music releases on vinyl. Uh, so far, it has been a. Uh, they've only done Sega. They've done Streets of Rage, Shenmue, Hang On, Shenmue, uh, Streets of Rage 2, and something else. Um, I have Streets of Rage and I have Streets of Rage 2. Uh, they just announced Outrun. Uh, this is going to. The pre order is going to be June 25th. And then I assume it'll release three months after that or so. That's how they usually do it. They do a pre-order and then it's released uh, months later. So I assume they must use the pre-order money to actually fund the pressing of the first batch of discs. Not quite sure how their business works, but whatever. I've got two. Uh, they're fantastic and uh, I highly recommend them if you have a record player or turntable um, or if you just want something really cool for your game room wall. Uh, really cool stuff. Um, this is going to, well, obviously the original Outrun just has, what, three songs? Splash Wave, obviously, being the big one. Magical Soundgarden, possibly something else. Uh, but it's going to have music from the original arcade board, uh, the Sega Genesis version, and then the 3DS version from 2014. Um, obviously, you know, fantastic soundtrack in that game. Uh, my most experience I have with it is Outrun on the Master System, which I'm not a huge fan of, although I really did like the FM soundtrack if you have um, a Japanese Master System or some other way to, to play the FM tunes. They sound really, really good, and I really enjoy it. And then there was some uh, remixed music on Outrun 2 for the Xbox, which is one of the best Xbox games ever, and the soundtrack is pretty awesome. So... Uh, data-disc.com if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, really high quality product and uh, I highly recommend it. I don't think I'll actually be getting Outrun. Uh, a little dry on music or dry on funds right now, but I did Streets of Rage and Streets of Rage 2. I could not live without them. So, a little bit of Nintendo NX news. Now, last week was the first day of E3. Um, I'm going to kind of wrap up the rest of what I found interesting. If I'm honest, as a whole, uh, the show didn't appeal to me too much. Not much for modern games. I do like hardware. I find talking about hardware or those kind of business decisions interesting. Uh, but a lot of the games don't really appeal to me. So that's not what I'm going to talk about. Uh, Nintendo announced or leaked, or somebody leaked that the Nintendo NX will have physical medium. Uh, so that'll be obviously their 25 gigabyte Blu-ray style discs that they currently use for the Wii U, I would imagine. And uh, there was some speculation that it might be digital only. So something like the PSP Go, I guess, would be the last real mainstream system that didn't have physical media. Even the PS uh, TV could, you know, have Vita cards. So uh, those fears are put to rest for people that are, uh, you know, really into that, aren't interested in a digital-only world. Somebody's going to pull that trigger. I don't know when it's going to be or if gaming will just die and exist uh, on phones and things like that that don't have any room for, you know, a, a card slot or a disc. But Nintendo is not going to be the one to jump into that foray. Uh, the... Nintendo of America president Reggie Films or whatever his name it whatever his name is uh, was quoted saying that uh, 
It's still not about the specs. So the Wii was incredibly underpowered compared to the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. Um, it was immensely successful, but that's because they had a launch lineup uh, with Wii Sports and nobody could live without that game. It was new, it was interesting, uh, generated a lot of hype, there were shortages forever. Um, they they just knocked it out of the park with a weak system. The Wii U came along and I think Nintendo thought the touchscreen controller was going to kind of catapult them uh, in the same way the motion controls did on the original Wii, and that just did not happen. Now, the first year of the Wii U's life, it received a lot of ports of games released on the Xbox 360 or PlayStation 3, um, but it did not, uh, after the Xbox One and PlayStation 4 kind of took a hold of the market, the Wii U stopped getting those ports, and... Nintendo's first-party offerings have always been, since even the Nintendo 64 days, kind of trickled in. And with that weak hardware not enticing developers to develop software for it, why would you spend all those man-hours making a port of your game that... If the Wii U was as powerful as the Xbox One and PlayStation 4, similar architecture, those game engines would just support all the major platforms and companies that would, it would be worth... It would be worth it for them to port their games to the Wii U, even with reduced sales because it wouldn't require a lot of effort. However, the Wii U is so much weaker that it would require a lot of effort, so they just don't bother. And that's kind of the... that seems... with that statement, that's what comes into my mind. Okay, the Nintendo NX is not going to... still not going to compete uh, with these other platforms, and that's real unfortunate. So I kind of thought about this a little bit, and I think a game console launch needs two things. First, it needs games. Uh, this was a big problem with the Wii U. While I think New Super Mario Bros. U is a terrific game, most people don't, and uh, it didn't sell systems. Um, now, there have been some pretty big hits, but imagine... Uh, if the Wii U launch had, like, Smash Brothers, uh, Splatoon, uh, Super Mario World 3D, Bayonetta, Hyrule Warriors, now that would have been a terrific launch. But those, all those games came two or three years later, uh, which is the biggest problem with the Wii U. The software trickles in, and Nintendo doesn't seem to allocate their resources properly. I think back to the Dreamcast days, 1999 through 2001, Sega had a lot of development teams and they seemed to be able to space games out pretty easily and consistently. The Dreamcast launch lineup was probably one of the best in gaming history. Uh, a lot of awesome games from Sega Midway, Namco, and a few other third parties. It was terrific and there was never a drought of software. Every month, Every week, there was awesome new games to play. Um, and even though Sega didn't have every third-party developer, especially Electronic Arts, they had no problems keeping that system going with their own software. And because it was so easy to de develop for, uh, third parties came along as well. So you need games. And the second thing you need is hype. Uh, this is why specs are important. To get people excited for your game console. Uh, people weren't excited about the Wii U's touchpad. They weren't, and 
because they weren't excited for that touchpad, you know, touch screen, you know, controller that still doesn't make any sense. It's neat, but it doesn't make any sense. Uh, there were no specs. There was nothing to get excited about. And that's what the Nintendo NX needs. It needs specs, not for just third party developers. It needs that to get people excited. People need to be like, oh, the NX, this is going to be better than, you know, whatever Sony and Microsoft has available for the next three or four years. That gets people excited. When people are excited, they give you their money. And when you sell enough systems, that's when third parties, uh, you know, start coming back to you. It all works together. It's all related. Um, so if they're not going to have an awesome launch lineup, which I doubt they will because they never really have, um, they need hype. And I don't think they're going to have it. I think a, a weaker system isn't going to make people buy the system, which means the third-party support drought they have today is going to, quite frankly, continue. And that's a shame. So, we shall see. Maybe there'll be Splatoon 2, Hyrule, War Hyrule Warriors 2, obviously, Zelda, Breath of the Wild. Uh, maybe they will have an awesome launch, launch lineup, but somehow I doubt it. What a shame. Alrighty, next piece of news. Uh, I'm gonna go with the Hyperkin Smart Boy. Um, this was an April Fool's joke a couple of years ago. Hyperkin, <clears throat> I hope they, I think it was Hyperkin. We talked about it in April. Uh, talked about a Turbo HD handheld um, that would play real turbo chip games or real hue cards um, as a handheld or could do wireless HDMI to your TV. Really cool idea, really exciting, totally made up. Before that, they had this thing called the Smart Boy, which was like a cell phone holder for your cell phone. It would cover the bottom half of the screen uh, with controls, a D-pad, start, select, and a couple of face buttons. Um, and then the top half of the screen was visible. And with a Game Boy emulator, you could play Game Boy games with a somewhat, you know, decent representation of what a Game Boy would have felt like. And even cooler, there's a cartridge slot on the back. So you can take this device, put your cell phone in it, put your copy of Mega Man 2 uh, on the Game Boy in there, and you're playing, you know, emulated Game Boy games on a really nice high-res screen if you have a really nice phone uh, to deliver you a pretty awesome Game Boy experience. And let's face it, Game Boy games are better on the go. That's what they were designed for. Um, I know people like to talk about how great the Game Boy Advance SP is, but let's be honest, the screen isn't all that great. It is low-res. Uh, it's quite easy easy to see the space between the LCD pixels. It's not the highest, best screen ever created, and it does have a lot of ghosting. Even the original DS, like if I'm playing uh, a Game Boy Advance game like Sonic that has a lot of movement, it just isn't the best experience possible. Uh, my TV here, or especially uh, the, the Mac screen that I'm staring at now, is much better in that regard. So I prefer original hardware, but I don't want to pretend that, you know, the ultimate Game Boy experience is this, you know, 15-year-old screen, because that's, that's not really right or accurate. It's, you know, whatever. So really cool. Uh, I don't know when this is coming out. Um, it sounded like it was going to be $60. Uh, their press release and their data on their Facebook page was a little confusing. It sounded like they have uh, one available for $60 for developers, and they're hoping that people can help them squash bugs, update the firmware, and make this a more retail-ready product. At least that's the impression I got from the information that they were releasing. Uh, $60 to me, oh, 
and this is Android only, no iOS. I don't think there's any game emulators officially on iOS uh, like there is on Android, or it's very easy to sideload apps on an Android phone, uh, you know, without unlocking your phone or anything like that. You can do it. Um, so really cool by Hyperkin. Uh, gives me, as cool as that is, I'm more excited about uh, a Turbo uh, HD then becoming a reality uh Outside of a few clone devices, uh, all of the Retrons lack uh, PC Engine or TurboGrafx support, so I think that would be really cool. Um, so that's the Hyperkin Smart Boy. Uh, the next piece of news is Mighty Number no. 9 came out today. Unless you pre-ordered the Xbox 360, Mac, or Linux versions, they're still working on those. They're not done. So I believe this is on the Wii U. Uh, I would like to pick it up on the Wii U. I don't know how much it costs. Might be something that I wait a year or two for the price to come down. I'm not really sure. Xbox 360 would be another option. Uh, but it finally came out about three years too late or two years too late or uh, way too late. Um, they gave out review codes to a few different reviewers before the kickstarter backers uh which is kind of a curious move um i'm sure they didn't mean any ill intent uh by that uh, but it is kind of a big oversight like why would you do that the people that you know funded your game should get it first and they didn't but anyway it's out today um if you don't know what Mighty Number no. 9 is, it's made by uh, Kenji Infune, who did the original Mega Man games for a really long time. Uh, he has his own company now, uh, wanted to make a spin-off or his own version of what he thought Mega Man should be in 2013 or 2014, and uh, it took him forever to make it. Uh, I read through the five reviews that were on Metacritic. Basically, what I'm gathering from these reviews are the uh, levels and enemy design are very uninspired, and there are some technical issues uh, with the frame rate, not allowing it to be the best Mega Man clone that it could be. Um, I have uh, Mega Man or Maverick Hunters on the PlayStation Portable, which is a 3D version, a totally redone version of Mega Man X on the Super Nintendo. And I thought it was going to be really, really amazing and awesome. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, the better resolution of the PSP versus the Super Nintendo and, you know, widescreen and bright polygon graphics. And something about that 2D gameplay doesn't translate into something about that gameplay just doesn't translate into polygons and the game feels very weird and i kind of don't really like it and that's kind of what this reminds me of um i don't know mega man is an awesome series uh, i still buy mega man games i've been playing a lot of mega man extreme on the game boy color lately absolutely love it it's kind of like an 8-bit port of mega man x and x2 um, except for 8-bit and it's surprisingly playable and complete and awesome so that's where i've been spending my mega man dollars is catching up on some of these older games that i haven't played before and uh i think there's a reason i don't know how to say this i think there's a reason why mega man games stopped being made and i think it's because people stopped caring um if they make a new Mega Man game, if Capcom did, it probably wouldn't sell as well as the old ones. Uh, people move on. Um, the series didn't evolve uh, when it stuck to side-scrolling, and when it tried to go into 3D, it just didn't really work anymore. And yeah, you know, these developers and designers, you know, kind of, they need to evolve and, and move on and, and make the next Mega Man. 
stop trying to create the old Mega Man. Uh, you know, if this guy really is as brilliant as we all feel he is, he should be able to deliver us a new experience that we haven't had before. Um, instead of, I don't want to say it, riding on the coattails of past success. Um, <clears throat> So anyway, uh, average reviews. Nobody said the game was bad. Nobody said the game was terrific. Everyone just sort of said, it's here and it's underwhelming. So it's like KO the kangaroo. Um, Moving on. Echo 2, Sentinels of the Universe. I think it's Sentinels. Yeah, it appears to be. Let's see here. Echo 2, Sentinels of the Universe was released on the internet. Uh, this would have been a sequel to the Dreamcast Echo game. Uh, apparently, they were working on a sequel. Uh, the first one, I suspect, didn't sell as well as they thought. Sega went third party, and the project was abandoned. But somebody found an what they feel is the latest beta version of this game. No sound, no music, but the, it plays. Um, they've released a CD image that you can burn and play on your Dreamcast, and that's pretty cool. Uh, props need to go to hiddenpalace.org, and I thought that was pretty neat. Um, since I've been on the internet in 1998-1999, I've always been fascinated with beta releases specifically of Sonic games. Um, if you, I think I am in the uh, the wiki, the Sonic, what is it? Sonic Retro, the wiki, um, talking about that original late 90s community you'll see a reference to sony's bad that's me i was a huge into that community back then i had a website and everything i thought it was terrific um you know exploring sonic extreme and stuff like that and then obviously um probably around 2003 or 4 my interest wandered into other things and uh yeah so i've always been big into that and it's cool that that is moving on to the dreamcast so like the genesis it i guess is pretty easy to find roms for um, or even release them, but uh, to kind of see these unreleased Dreamcast games still coming into the light is pretty awesome. Um, I'm trying to think Half-Life 2 would be a big one on the Dreamcast. I have that burn somewhere. You know, retail ready for the Dreamcast. Sega kills the Dreamcast, and Valve decides not to release the game. Like, how weird is that? The game was done. Um, so stuff like that has been released on the Dreamcast, and it, it's cool that this is still happening 15 years after the Dreamcast died. So if you're into that sort of thing, check it out. Hiddenpalace.org. All right, so that's going to conclude the news. Um, Something, the middle part of this show is going to be something that happened to me uh, this past week. Uh, So after, I believe it was right after recording the last show um, and putting it on YouTube, somebody commented that they saw my footage, uh, my CDI footage, on somebody else's video. Um, I probably have the only probably have the only CDI footage on YouTube uh, that's properly recorded with a FrameMeister. So beautiful 240p uh, S video, unfortunately. I don't have my uh, CDI RGB modded or anything like that. I have the best looking CDI footage on the internet. And uh, somebody spotted a video. The footage looked nice, crisp, and clean. It was obviously still real hardware. And they uh, brought it to my attention. And uh, I went out, I checked the video, and there it is. The first 30 seconds of the video um, is about 20 seconds of footage that I recorded. And the footage came from one video, uh, Five Good Philips CDI Games, uh, which is a video I put out a couple of months ago. A video that's caused me a lot of problems and still <laughs> causing me a lot of problems. Um, so yeah, I was kind of annoyed. Now, I wasn't mad. Um, 
Because there's one, nothing I can do, right? Like I'm not going to try for a copyright strike or anything like that or call anybody names or it's just not in my nature and it's not a, a productive use of my time. And quite frankly, I don't even know if I own the footage, right? I didn't program CDI Tetris. Um, I didn't program Mutant League, whatever the hell it's called. I didn't program Pack Panic. Like I don't think I own the footage, the the companies that created those games or whoever owns the companies that created those games own that footage. I own my words. I own my script. I don't believe I own the footage. So there's really nothing that I can do. But for me, it wasn't about the legality of it. It was just about the common courtesy. Um, I have released almost 400 videos on YouTube now, and I have only used my own recorded footage. Uh, I've never taken footage from anybody. I've never asked anybody if I could use their footage. I just do it all myself. Um, I thought that's what everybody did, um, but obviously if you go on like Watch Mojo or something, uh, you can see that's not the case. And uh, I was watching another video like, just a cliche, you know, 10 worst video game consoles ever. And as each system goes by and it's very obvious what the top five are going to be because it's been said over and over for the last 10 years. It's obvious when watching the footage that <laughs> the black levels are different in every one. Um, everything about every piece of footage is different and came from a different source. And stuff like that bothers me. It's like, why are you calling this the worst game system ever when you didn't even play the system or the games? And where did you get this footage from? Because you didn't do it yourself. It all looks different. That stuff kind of bugs me. Like, I don't know. So I've always recorded my own footage. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit. So this was actually uh, Larry Bundy Jr., uh, a.k.a. Guru Larry. Um, he is a British YouTuber. Um, I believe he was on TV over there back in the day. I'm not familiar with him at all. Uh, he's left comments on my videos probably a few times a year. I notice his avatar. I'm like, eh, so there's a good artist. Somebody, you know, drew that and it looks pretty awesome. I, that's all I knew. And... Uh, Turns out he is actually a pretty big deal. He was on TV in the UK. He has a big YouTube channel closing in on 200,000 uh, subscribers. And that kind of made it hurt a little worse. Like, man, you've got, you've made it. You've got all of these, you've got all the resources in the world and, and you just stole my footage without giving me credit. And my footage had nothing to do with your video. What the hell? Um, so if you want to check it out, the video is five stupid things said by games journalists. And uh, it's a fine video, I guess. But yeah, it kind of bugged me. So I left a comment basically saying, why did you take my footage? I uh, didn't get a response from him. I posted um, a picture on a couple on my Facebook page for Implant Games, along with Maximum, RD's, whatever retro page. Sorry, Rob. And uh, somebody pointed me in the direction of the correct person on Facebook. So I sent him a message saying, hey, you know, like this isn't illegal or whatever, but you know, I'm a little bummed that you took my footage and you didn't give me any credit for it. Um, so then a few days ago, uh, he updated the description saying the CDI footage came from me. And then this morning he did send me a message message saying, hey, man, you know, I'm sorry. And uh, that was that. So <sighs> I hate stuff like that. So whatever. He seems like a nice guy. I was never mad. I was very disappointed that it happened. Um, I know it happens to everybody and I just have to get over it. And then half of you watching are like, who cares if someone stole your footage? You don't own it. You know, that's just a non-issue for some people. And I accept that as well. So 
Um, if I ever need somebody's footage, I'm going to give them credit. And well, first I'm going to ask, and then second I'm going to give them credit uh, in the credit section of the video, and then uh, it'll probably never happen. But if I have to, that's how I'm going to do it. So I don't get it. I don't. I kind of talked about this with the with the React video uh, stuff that happened with the Fine Brothers in January, where it's like, why am I doing everything the hard way when I could just film myself reacting to something? Uh, why do I spend all of this time beating video games and then talking about them uh, when I could just steal somebody else's footage and you know spout out a bunch of nonsense that I I have no idea. This comment is not about Larry Bundy's video. This I've moved on. Um, his video had nothing to do with video games. It had to do with video game journalists. But we've all seen a lot of videos where it's clear they never played the game. Um, I, you know, when they get subs and they get views and why? Why do I spend all this time? Why did I spend five hours playing KO the Kangaroo? Why did I spend six hours playing, you know, Cr Crash Bandicoot the Wrath of Cortex when I could have just spouted off a bunch of nonsense and stole somebody else's footage? Like... So annoying to me, but I'm going to continue doing it the right way or the way, the way that I feel is right. And it will continue to annoy me uh, when I spot videos uh, w with stolen footage. I hate that. Oh, what else did I say? So I have done one. I have posted one video with footage that I did not own. Um, and that was with uh, my Laserdisc Framemeister video. Um I showed off what a Laserdisc player looks like through the Framemeister and the four videos that, uh, the four movies or the four Laserdiscs that I showed footage of. I did my best to put the copyright holder's information on the screen and I didn't use any of the audio. And, uh, I guess it seems to work. I haven't gotten hit or complained about, but that's what I did when I had to take footage that I did not own. So I do fail sometimes with photo credits. I try my best to use photos that have a Creative Commons license or have, yeah, I guess it would be a Creative Commons license. And I try to follow that license and give the appropriate credits either when I show the photo right below it or in the credit section. Once in a while, I'll either forget or I can't find the photo owner. And then I'm just kind of stuck. But maybe that makes me a hypocrite. I don't know. So there we go. To any of you listening, watching, I know a lot of you are YouTube creators. I have hundreds of hours of video game footage uh, recorded, especially over the last six months. Uh, 1080p, uh, 16 megabit per second through the Framemeister done correctly. If you ever need any footage, I have a ton of unused footage that I would be more than happy to drop in a Dropbox folder. And you can use it for whatever you need to. Whether you're going to talk about it even though you hadn't played it, I don't care. Uh, I have a huge library, about 7 terabytes of video game footage. And I'd be more than happy uh, to, to let you have access to that. Just ask. Just ask and give me credit. That's all I need. Alrighty, so we are going to move on to the final segment of our show, which is, of course, the cheap games. Collecting video games is can is can be very expensive, but it doesn't have to be. So I'm going to talk about two games that I paid less than five dollars for. One that is still one that now goes for over five dollars. One that is still less than five dollars, and both of them you should check out. Um, so let's go ahead and ruin the camera here. $1.99, this is pure pinball on the original Xbox. Now this goes for between $10 and $20 these days. I don't really know how this got expensive. 
Um, it was kind of released when people didn't care as much about digital pinball. Uh, now there is the, what, the pinball arcade apps on everything that are pretty popular and do a really awesome job of having great physics and accurate tables. And this has four made-up tables, um, but they all are pretty awesome. And for an Xbox game, obviously you would expect a, a pinball table on an Xbox to look pretty good, and it does. Um, it's all 3D instead of sprites. Uh, the physics feel really good. The ball seems to have the right amount of momentum when moving up and down the screen. Um, and there's, you know, interesting shots. It's easy to, to figure out how the table works. Enable modes, you know, get jackpot score points and things like that. Um, rock and soundtrack. There's a ton of graphical options. Glass, no glass, camera move, a million different things. If you're into digital pinball and uh, you're looking for four tables that you haven't played before, uh, check out Pure Pinball, American Pinball Reborn on the original Xbox. And the second game, let's see here, 99 cents. This is Our Racing Evolution. Now, this was released on the GameCube and PlayStation 2 and, of course, the Xbox. This game still goes for pretty much nothing these days. And uh, I actually bought this brand new back in 2000. Back in 2003, when this came out, it was Namco. Um, I still was trying to get into the Ridge Racer series. And this, uh, I bought it. I didn't really care for it. And I've probably bought it two or three times since. Um, but this week, I actually sat down and started putting it through its paces. What I really like about this game, one, it's gorgeous. 60 frames per second. Car models look great, especially for 2003. Um, it has a career mode where you follow, where basically... You're this lady on the front, and you kind of have a racing career. So you start where somebody is impressed with your ability to drive an ambulance. They put you in a car, and then you have to win the race. And it kind of goes like that. So you're building a career. You've got rivals. But what I really like about it is that all the options are taken away from me. I don't have to pick a track and I, you know, and figure out what to do. The game says, I'm going to make you race four tracks, pick a car. So I pick, you know, an Audi TT and then I just race. It could be a drift race. It could be a real race track. It could be anything it just says, this is what you're doing next. And then you do it. I kind of now today, I kind of like that. That's an interesting way to do it. So taking that choice away and just saying, hey, here's something really cool I want you to do. I want you to race this cool car on Suzuka short. Go. And I'm like, OK, I'll go. And it's pretty awesome. The story is cheesy or whatever. Uh, the other thing I really like about it, is, which I didn't appreciate back in 2003, um, is the controls are really good. Now, one thing I hate about Racing games, some racing games that came out in that era, is they still didn't do a good job of making the front tires steer the car. Um, so you could play, I want to say Colin McRae, and it's quite obvious the car's front wheels are not dictating the steering. The car is like on a pivot point in the center of the car. So when you see like the, you turn left and the ass kicks out, like that's not how a car acts. And it really sucks me out of the experience. Now I raced go-karts for five years, uh, racing go-karts for five years. So I have a much deeper appreciation for little touches like that. Um, if you're into a more arcade style game, then something like that obviously isn't going to bother you. 
Um, but if you're playing modern games like Forza Motorsport or the Gran Turismo series, like going back and playing some of these games when the steering is wrong, it just feels really weird. But this game feels terrific. The oversteer, oversteer feels right. The acceleration is everything about it feels very realistic, but it's presented in a very accessible way. And the other neat thing they did about this, uh, they did with this game is they made, uh, the car in front of you has a bar. And if you're on their ass for, any amount of time, they start to get nervous and a little bar fills up. And the more nervous they are, the more likely they are to screw up, um, which puts an emphasis on, okay, you need to watch it because, you know, you can either try and pass them on your own doing a cool racing maneuver or heads up, they're about to do something wrong. And it's just a really interesting way to tackle passing, uh, which can be very difficult in a simulation. Like I said, I raced go-karts for five years. Uh, there are many races where you start third and finish third, and nothing happens for the entire eight-lap race. Like, that's racing. That's real racing. That happens sometimes. And they kind of blended in some unique elements to make it more accessible, and I really dig it. So I did not like it in 2003. If you're looking for something from 99 cents in 2016, check it out. It's available on all three platforms. Oh, and the music, too. The music reminds me of Ridge Racer, a lot of high-energy dance-style stuff. I swear I heard one of these songs in Ridge Racer for the PlayStation Portable. So if you're into that mid-2000s, late-90s, Namco, you know, synthesized music, definitely check it out. Pretty good stuff. So uh, that is going to be all for this show. Now, I am... I'm not going to do this podcast for two weeks, so next Tuesday I won't be here, and uh, I got a wedding to get ready for this coming Saturday, so I don't know exactly when I'm going to be back. Um, I do feel an obligation to not be gone for too long because I have uh, 13 awesome people on Patreon um, you know, that are supporting me, and in return, I produce content, so my goal is to be gone for one week, which would put me uh, next Thursday. I'll start having videos again. I will do my best. Um, but that's it for me, guys. If you are listening to this show and you would like to watch it, check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash implantgames. I do three videos each and every week, except for this coming week. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube and you want to subscribe to it like a normal podcast, check out the description. I've got a link to the RSS feed, the Google Play link, as well as iTunes. So until next time, guys, have a great week. <laughs>